So this evening I want to speak about the seven factors of awakening or the seven factors of enlightenment as it's sometimes called. These are the nutriments of liberation. One of the last important pieces of advice that the Buddha gave at the end of his life, of course, he said, you are the light, you are the refuge. There is no place, no place to take refuge but yourself. You are the light, you are the refuge. There is no place to take refuge but yourself. And these words are often a reminder to me when the teacher says that, which we've heard often, when the teacher says that to us, it's a kind of a vote of confidence in us as students. Often I remind myself that, oh, I've got what it takes. You know, it doesn't need to depend on something outside of myself. The seeds of awakening are within this very heart, this very mind. A few years ago when I went to Burma to practice, um, there was a sort of a renewed sense of ardency to do what I needed to do to kind of unlayer where there were lay more layers of delusion. There still are, but at that time there was a sense to really go more deeply in my practice. There was a sense to uh, expose new layers of understanding, new layers of insight that might be exposed through my practice. And when the teacher asked me, what are you here for? What did you come here for? And I answered him, I've come to clean up my mind a little more, something like that. And he said this to me, which was very interesting. You must be willing to invest everything you have in the practice. You must be willing to invest everything you have in the practice. And that, those words and the tone of his voice and the place and the setting and everything that I felt at that time still comes back to me today. It's an interesting way that it was put to use the word investing. You must invest everything you have. And of course he didn't mean anything about whatever material resources that I had at that time. But I knew that what he was referring to was to bring forth the qualities already in the mind stream already developed, that would be a nutriment for deeper understanding, a nutriment for the relinquishment of more greed, more hatred, more delusion. So these qualities are the qualities of the seven factors of enlightenment or awakening. And these are being developed here moment by moment as we do our practice. It's not that we have to have some strong intention to bring them forth. They are naturally bring, being brought forth through our moment-to-moment -moment practice here. It's because of certain conditions, the karma that we have in our lives that allows us to be here, 
because of our, our resources, our financial conditions, the conditions of our family that allow us to be here, the conditions of our health, the conditions of our willingness to learn about what is difficult to learn about. It's hard to do this practice. Not too long ago, well, it, it could have been, we might say it was several years ago, I was actually reading this kind of a junk book. You know, uh, it was about a, uh, it was a spy book. And one of the spies was saying to another, you know, that he practiced Vipassana. <laughs> and the spy replied, oh, that's really hardcore, practicing Vipassana. <laughs> this was a spy. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I felt kind of like, yeah, it's pretty daunting to do this practice. I can, I can understand why it's not so easy for people or that you, you can't open to it sometimes. But at the same time, I feel a sense of strength that I stay with it even when it's hard. So we have these other conditions, the conditions of silence and this kind of seclusion. Maybe we're all together, but we're allowing ourselves and each other a sense of seclusion so we can examine what's going on in our own hearts, in our own minds, without interference from the outside, without somebody else making a comment about it that would kind of, you know how it is when you're in retreat and you've gotten one note and you can, your mind can go around and round around one little note um, and it, it kind of can throw you off a bit. So it's very, important to have this kind of commitment to explore what's going on inside. Like Mark Twain says, self-discovery is not always good news. You know, we, we find a lot of things out about what's going on there that it's hard to open to. But as our senior colleague says, it's better to know it than to not know it because when we don't know it, it's lost in that field of delusion. But when it is known, it's brought into the field of clarity. It's brought into the field of awareness and the potential wisdom that can come from that. So these are the seven factors that I want to help you to explore just in terms of knowing them this evening. And I'll be repeating them, so if you don't catch them all now, those of you who are taking notes, you'll catch them during the talk. These seven are mindfulness, investigation, effort, joyful interest or delight, calm, concentration, and equanimity. These are the seven. I've heard this talk so many times, and when I look at my paper, how many times I've given this talk, it's also many, many times. And every time I hear this talk or take in what is to be known about this talk, some deeper and stronger seeds are dropped in the mind stream. Very important. It's always given me a source of empowerment. You know, this kind of knowledge is food for wisdom. It's nutriment for wisdom. To know the causes and conditions that contribute to the ongoingness of our spiritual practice is really important. And not just to know them 
as knowledge, kind of something that we write down and look over, but to know them as experiential knowledge. And as they are pointed out to you, you will begin to see them more and more clearly in your own experience. And it's not only the painful experiences that will be known, but as these are pointed out, they will be known. It's like looking at a complex painting and you don't see some of the refinements, some of maybe the, uh, the rhythm of that painting or the, uh, the kind of very fine lines that are there that are really holding that painting together. And if someone says, look here, look at these lines or look at these forms on the painting or look at the space, that's holding it all together. You begin to see something more refined than greed, hatred, and delusion. And so this is what the pointing out helps us to understand. When a very relaxed yet clear mindful attention is applied to whatever the predominant object is, and this is what the instructions have been to all of you, when a relaxed yet clear mindful attention is applied to whatever is happening, not just to the breath, but to all of the four foundations of mindfulness. The breath comes under the category of sensations of the body. Um, these uh, four foundations are body, feelings, which are pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, the third foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of mind. The fourth foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of mental objects of the mind. And that can get a little complicated to understand, but let's just put all of that needing to understand that aside, just knowing that basically these four foundations of mindfulness comprise of one foundation, which is of the body, and three foundations, which is of the mind. And that's why Steve and I accentuate all of them, not just that of the body. So these four foundations are to be known in all of the postures, in our sitting, in the walking, in the standing, in the lying down, and all the sub-postures of those, but those are the four main postures. When this mindful attention in a relaxed, clear way is brought to every one of these four, whichever one is predominant at the time, this results in the maturing of all of the other factors of enlightenment. So when mindfulness becomes very uh, continuous, it becomes stronger and it strengthens all of the other factors. The Buddha said, if the four foundations of mindfulness are practiced persistently and repeatedly, the seven factors of enlightenment will be automatically and fully developed. And so I really take that to heart, that the seven factors of awakening or enlightenment will be automatically and fully developed. We see in our practice and see in other people's practice that it is really very organic. It's not a matter of, you know, calling forth concentration. Of course, we have to practice it, or uh, it's not a matter of um, just intending to be uh, 
energetic, but not carrying it out. It's really a matter of carrying out each one of these factors as best as we can. That part of the Buddha's statement, if the four foundations of mindfulness are practiced persistently and repeatedly, actually just means the continuity of our practice. So it's not this kind of big thrust to be mindful, but it's this gentle persevering effort that we can bring to our practice. And when we, we forget where we are, we just bring another moment of mindfulness to that moment of experience. So this statement about the seven factors will be automatically and fully developed has always been a very reassuring um, confidence, promise of the Buddha. The Buddha connects this development of the seven factors to liberation. And so this is what he says from the numerical discourses. He was talking to a group of bhikkhus or monks. And he said, monks, I declare that liberation by supreme knowledge has its nutriment. It is not without a nutriment. And what is the nutriment of liberation by supreme knowledge? The seven factors of enlightenment should be the answer. So these seven factors of enlightenment are a very important part of our process to start to recognize. And this Dhamma teaching is meant to help you become more aware of your own process in this spiritual process, in this particular area of mindfulness, to be more knowledgeable about your own experience. A lot of our teaching, and most of it, if not all of it, is to help you to be more knowledgeable. It's not about depending on us for anything. It really gives you the empowerment to know your own practice and to carry it out with your own energy. So you're more able to recognize these factors when they're already there. Sometimes we need to feed the factors with more energy, with more carrying them out. So I hope that you, as we have, will also feel empowered by this healing kind of confidence that you can have by knowing this and developing this on your own. Um, what happens to me when I notice these factors in my own practice is that it becomes a great source of confidence to me. And it's something where I know that it's coming from within and it's not a dependency on anything outside of myself. So of these seven, there are three energizing factors, and they are investigation, and I'll, I'll talk about what that means. Effort or energy is the second one, and delight, or sometimes known as joyful interest, is the third of these, this grouping of the energizing factors. And there's a second grouping which balances the energizing factors. And this is a grouping of the tranquilizing factors or the stabilizing factors. And these factors are calm, 
concentration, and equanimity. The last one that I'll um, speak about now is mindfulness itself. This is called the linking factor because it links all of the others together, it balances all of the others, and it develops all of the others. So uh, mindfulness of all of them, mindfulness is the one that actually feeds, gives the most nourishment to all of the other factors. That's why a lot of times the Buddha would talk about how this is so key to our practice. Manindra would always say about mindfulness that when mindfulness is present, the others come near. Because mindfulness is one of those wholesome qualities of mind, which it is said, bring all the other wholesome qualities together. It's the factor of like magnetism, where like attracts like. Wholesome qualities bring other wholesome qualities together. And the reverse is true too. Unwholesome qualities, if one unwholesome quality is there, you may be able to notice other ones nearby also. It mag magnetizes the other ones to come near. There was a time, it was here when we had a kahi farm and I was at a retreat. A lot of retreats were held at this place in Haiku called a kahi farm, this place on Maui. And I remember um, this Akahi farm was an old kind of guava. Um, there was a guava factory there where we kind of held our, we held our retreats. We changed it into a retreat center. And also there were a lot of guavas growing around. It was quite jungly. And one time it was very, very difficult. Well, one of the times it was very, very difficult for me to do the practice. And it was one of the times when we call it the maximum dukkha day. You know, the, this is usually a day when, you know, all the hindrances are present. We have a multiple hindrance attack and it's impossible to go on. That's why you need a good friend to say, you'll get through this. So I went to Manindra and I was ready to stop. I was ready to go home. I was ready to quit. And Manindra was quite, um, I could feel kind of his annoyance with me in his, his Manindra way. And uh, I said, I can't do this anymore. I can, really can't be mindful moment to moment. It's very, very difficult to, to do this. And he said, your only job is to be mindful. And I remember that until this time. That was about 30 years ago. I still remember his voice. Your only job is to be mindful. And the next thing he said was, I'm not asking you to cut the jungle, you know, around. <laughs> he said, I'm just asking you to be mindful. And I thought, well, okay, I'll, I'll try. You know, it, it wasn't, it didn't seem so hard when he said it. Just be mindful of whatever's happening right at this moment. When we can be patient, you know, with kind of a, a gentle, persevering effort, it's possible. But when we become impatient with ourselves and with our practice, and we, we just no longer find the way, you know, the, the inner jungle, the thicket inside seems too thick, 
um, we really need someone to help us to say, it's okay, just pay attention to this, or just stand outside and look at the ocean for a while. <coughs> That's always helpful. Notice seeing, seeing. So mindfulness is not an easy quality to know or to experience. We, when we say mindfulness, we say awareness sometimes, or we say attention. When mindfulness um, is there, we're usually knowing the object of mindfulness. You know, the mindful of the body, mindful of feelings, mindful of mental states. We're usually knowing that, but we're usually not examining mindfulness or awareness itself. We're getting to know that better with different kinds of instructions, but uh, we're usually more mindful of the object. But here, we want to explore what awareness itself is, what the shining jewel that helps uh, the mind to reflect whatever is going on clearly, what exactly is that? How can we describe it? One of the ways that it's described in the ancient texts is by the use of this word apamada. We, you may not hear that so often, but apamada means non-negligence. It's kind of an, an interesting way to look at the word mindfulness, non-negligence. We heard a lot about non-negligence, just like I told you about the course that I attended where there was a lot said about sila, or virtuous conduct. On one particular course, um, at least half of the talks were on apamada by Seda Upandita. Apamada means non-negligence, of course. And he told this, he told every detail about non-negligence you can think of. Somebody said today, I've never heard the instructions the way you give them. They're so detailed and so more, much more clarity. It's because we were taught in so much detail about everything that actually we have to suss out what is too much. So non-negligence to the present moment, careful attention to the present moment of whatever is happening inside and sometimes around us. What, what is this careful attention? Before I go on, I want to uh, quote from this collection of sayings in the Dhammapada, which is one of my favorite ones about negligence and non-negligence. The Buddha said, the foolish and the ignorant give themselves over to negligence, whereas the wise treasure mindfulness as a precious jewel. And as we come closer to understanding experientially what mindfulness is, the freedom that it gives us, the clarity that it gives us, the ability to see the letting go more clearly, we see the precious jewel that it is. When someone has a quality of carefulness or mindfulness about them, that stands out much more than their physical appearance. It stands out much more than whatever they say they know about life 
or about themselves. It stands out much more than their status in society or how much they own or earn. Their understanding of uh, wise and careful attention is very, very palpable in life. You get a sense that this quality participates in life's events mindfully. It isn't a sense that this person is just standing by as a witness. Often the, the word witness is used to replace mindfulness. And this is not complete understanding. Wit, to witness something, to just stand by and, for example, not do anything about something is not a complete understanding of careful attention. Because someone with careful attention participates in life, is able to see clearly what's happening, and then to participate or not participate, depending upon what the discernment is. So you might say that this uh, experience is not distant or removed from life, but really part, feeling part of the environment, feeling part of life, feeling part of society with this wise attention. It's a participatory awareness, not a distant awareness. One side, um, you might say that it's the ground between being overindulgent and sort of identified with what one notices we can be quite identified with noticing aversion within us or with judging or quite identified with the body or with any mental state. The other side uh, where it's not really our participatory awareness is when there's a blind denial of what's going on within us or outside of us. So this is somewhere in the middle, a middle path of awareness. It's very alive, very honest, very down to earth. A very few years ago, uh, we were at a teacher's meeting at Spirit Rock. And there are a lot of Western teachers there. The Dalai Lama was there. And he was asked a very uh, interesting question. He was asked, do you experience defilements? And so, you know, I was really waiting to know what he answered. And he said, oh, yes, plenty of them. He says, but I'm not fooled by them. You know, it's just the ability to be there with him within seeing them come up, not needing to act them out by words or behavior, or when seeing in other people, not being fooled by them, not identified with them. Also with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, this is just a down-to-earth example of how there can be a participatory awareness and a wise uh, connection to what's happening, wise, mindful connection to what's happening. I was once at a gathering in 1989 
of um, one of the teachings that he gave in San Jose, California. It was a, a Rigpa retreat. And um, there were a lot of people there, thousands of people. And actually, he had just received the Nobel Peace Prize. And it was going to be announced at that meeting with all these people. And it was a very sacred chanting and meeting of everyone. There were many monks there, and um, I attended with the local Lama here, Lama Tenzin, when he was still alive, and um, Georgiana, his translator. And so um, the Dalai Lama was doing some very uh, sacred chanting in, in that beautiful, deep voice that he has. And as he was chanting along, it got kind of where we were all sitting there for a while and some people started getting up and leaving. And um, I could see that he was just kind of, you know, chanting and then looking around, wondering what was going on. And he stopped his chanting in the middle of the chanting. And in a very caring way, he said, bathroom? Anybody want to go to the bathroom? And <laughs> so, you know, people were so interested in going to the bathroom and they couldn't be there with the, you know, the bladder needed to be emptied. So he just stopped all of his chanting and people got up to go to the bathroom and we all came back. You know, it takes about an hour for 5,000 people to get up and go. <laughs> so we all came back and then he just took his seat again and continued to chant again. And it was okay, you know, it was not like, this is bad, you're leaving the scene or something like that. I really appreciated that. That was just a really beautiful example to me of that participatory awareness and that careful attention, that non-negligence. So mindfulness is likened to a clean and clear mirror that reflects everything that's going on, but doesn't, there's nothing in that mirror that reaches out to grab it and hold on and cling to it if it's pleasant. Nothing in that mirror that pushes it away if it's unpleasant. And it's very clean and clear, so there's no delusion. It just reflects what's happening. Chuang Tzu, a fourth century Taoist, says in this way, the perfect woman or man uses a mind as a mirror. It clings to nothing, it refuses nothing, it receives but does not keep. So see it in that way, that kind of, of course, you know, it, mindfulness does that and other factors of mind go forth to take action. But first mindfulness comes for that clear discerning attention what is going on here? Just knowing what is going on within ourselves and outside of ourselves. It reflects the present moment without any bias. There is not a liking, there is an absence of disliking, not adding, not distorting anything. So of course this results in greater discernment. What is happening in this very moment? So this 
bear attention that we're developing here is called sati patana, this kind of mindfulness. It's not an ordinary mindfulness that we're developing here. That kind of mindfulness which allows us to get in line, get our plate, go through the line, um, balance our checkbooks, send our children to school, and get ourselves through life. That kind of mindfulness is important, that everyday mindfulness. But that, the, our teachers would say, is ordinary mindfulness. The mindfulness we're developing here is, is extraordinary mindfulness. So that's why it's called sati patana. Sati means to remember, to remember to be present. Pa means extraordinary extraordinary. It's the emphasis on mindfulness. And tana means on the object of the present moment. So sati patana means extraordinary mindfulness on the object of the moment. So this allows for that bare attention to happen over and over again in a balanced way. When it's strongly developed, it clearly reflects the various moment-to-moment experiences in the mental or physical area of life. And through continuity of this development, the another factor of wisdom is developed. So Steve will talk about wisdom more uh, later. When wisdom is developed, the Factors of ignorance and delusion begin to be dispelled. There's more clarity of seeing, there's less distortion, there's less adding, there's less kind of perceiving something in a way that um, is not true. So it is this wisdom that frees the mind. It is this wisdom that brings about liberation. The teachings that Utejaniya has brought to the West have been really important for bringing more emphasis on this point, that awareness alone is not enough. Just being mindful is not enough. He wrote a book about that, actually. Actually, we were together one time, and he had said this, awareness is not enough. And I thought, gee, that should really be the title of a book. And he added, awareness alone is not enough. And in time, it was. So we know that sati's function is to reflect the present moment so deeply and so profoundly and clearly that it reveals transformative wisdom, liberating insight into the true nature of reality. It's important to have sati or mindfulness, but what it what it supports, what it opens to, is key. That is what is important. The wisdom that is developed because of mindfulness. So this is about mindfulness in short. That's the first factor. The second factor is investigation. This is the first of the energizing factors. It is activated by mindfulness. It is not the investigation in the way of thinking or uh, commenting 
about what's happening. It's not the investigation of remembering the past or the future or thinking about the future. It is the investigation only of the present moment. And that's what uh, is different between this kind of investigation and the kind of investigation you might think about, like scientific investigation or psychological investigation or any other kind. This is just investigation of what is going on in the present moment's experience. It's not uh, about the whys and wherefores of something, although we come to see in this investigation of the present moment the causes and conditions for, they come automatically. We don't have to stop and think, what are the causes and conditions of this experience? They come quite organically. We come to understand, for example, just for example, if there is a lot of aversion towards something, we come to see that one of the causes and conditions of that aversion is attachment to something else. So that understanding, that kind of uh, investigative understanding comes automatically. We don't need to kind of think about it or ruminate about it. But if we do, you know, and that happens just spontaneously, it's okay momentarily. But to keep doing it would take the mind away from the moment-to-moment -moment experience. I remember one time talking to Seda Upandita about what the mind was beginning to have an insight about. And it was a really uh, important um, time for my practice where understanding about the nature of, of self and not-self was being known. And I started to tell him something. And he said something in Burmese, and the translator said to me, stop. If you continue in this way, you will go backwards. You know, just thinking about something, even in a quite a spiritual way. So, it's important to know that investigation is really about investigating the arising, the changing nature, and the passing away of the momentary experience. That's one way of understanding or experiencing investigation. To notice its arising, to notice how it changes in the moment, how it passes away. Every moment of the breath can be known that way the arising of the in-breath and the changing nature of it, tension, hardness, pressure, um, warmth, coolness, expansion, contraction, and the falling mo moment of the breath. Same kind of experiences. So we see the arising and the changing nature, the passing away of all of that, and also the unique characteristics of that experience. For example, anger. What's the unique characteristic of anger? The unique characteristics of anger. In one moment, it may be burning. In another moment, it may be tension or pressure in the mind. We see that that is very different from the unique characteristics of joy. Joy is kind of a lightness of mind sometimes, a brightness, 
sometimes a feeling of an openness, sometimes a, a different kind of energy than the energy of uh, anger. So those kinds of things are investigated in practice. They're investigated by bringing the attention close enough to the experience that it really experiences it deeply, profoundly. So for example, if I hold out my hand, I might say without really deeply experiencing it, well, I see what is called conceptually a hand. But if I can go a little deeper than that, I can see this shape and form. And I can see, for example, um, smoothness and roughness. But if I can bring my attention closer to that, I can now say if this is attention and I'm bringing it to this experience of what is called hand, there is warmth, there is smoothness, there's roughness, there's stickiness, there's tension, there's tightness. And so those are the unique characteristics of that experience. It's taking the attention and bringing it not so close that you fall into it or get absorbed in it, but it's close enough so that it experiences it more profoundly than a concept or an idea. So this is investigation. If investigation is weak, then doubt arises. Sometimes when I've come to the teacher and said, oh, I have doubt in the mind. I, I don't, why? I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. And um, of course, as my colleague Sharon Salzberg always says, you have to make sure that when you tell the yogis this, that it was in the past. <laughs> they might have doubt in you. <laughs> so um, then the teacher would say, oh, there's not enough investigation. There's not enough knowing of the present moment and the unique characteristics and maybe the universal characteristics of seeing the arising and the changing and the passing away of it. So also doubt arises because you're thinking too much of something. Are you thinking about what to do? Are you kind of indecisive about where to go? Are you just kind of being in the realm of concept instead of really sinking down into something deeper than that? So this investigation has to do with connecting and sustaining the attention on the actual experience. And when I say connecting and sustaining the attention, I don't mean even for a minute. It's momentary that it happens. It's just bringing the attention closely, but of course it's momentary because it passes away. Can't stay with it very long. And that's one thing to notice. So that's the first one of the energizing. And the second is energy itself, effort itself. This effort is not to change what's happening. This effort is not to get to something better. This effort is only to know this present moment. It's not to get rid of something or not to gain something else that we feel we should be experiencing but it's only to know this present moment. 
And as we say, it's really short moments many times. This effort is continuity, it's persistence. And if you lose your way, if you lose your continuity, it's okay, just let it go. Let the past, what happened in the past go. Sometimes, truthfully, I've, I could have just wasted a whole morning thinking about something in the past. <laughs> it doesn't happen that long now, but it still happens. And I've realized that, you know, if I just let go and just say, okay, just begin again, that whole morning doesn't mean a thing. You can just pick up where you left off. And, and if you ruminate about, oh, I've wasted the time, I'm a bad yogi, I, you know, I don't know what to report now. Sure, you might report wasted a whole morning, and then, you know, now you're back on track. And the teacher's just um, concerned with, are you back on track? That's all. You know, just get back on track. And really, when you're in practice, everything's so timeless. A whole morning is like a moment. It's like, where did it even go? It's not even important. So just getting back on track and keeping that continuity, even if you feel that you've lost it. So in terms of energy and effort, I just want to point out this one thing to make sure that it's about gentle, persevering continuity. And it's not about a big oomphing power. If there's too much energy, like that just trying to push or they're striving for something, that's why we um, talk about relaxing all the time. There's, there will be restlessness. There will be tightness in the body. There will be tiredness. And doubt will also come from this. If there's too little energy, there will be torpor. There will also be doubt. There will be no confidence in your practice. So you have to put just the right amount of energy. So that's the second energizing. And the third is a joyful interest or a kind of delight in your practice. And this joyful interest can be with whatever's happening. It doesn't have to be with, you know, beautiful things that are happening in your practice. It's not delight in the flower. It's, although there can be, you know, it's not delight in, oh, what a beautiful day, the ocean or the food or whatever it is. It's delight in just seeing what's going on in your own mind. I wonder if you have already taken delight in the pain of the body. I mean, it seems like con a contraindicated thing, but it's possible to see the pain arising in the body and to, to be able to notice it. There's a pain that arises and then that's noticed. And maybe there's aversion to it and then that's noticed. And then maybe there's the aversion to the aversion and that's noticed. And then there's a noticing that the ability to be mindful of all of that brings delight to the mind. It's, just, it's an incredible experience to have, to know that there can be delight when there's this consistent mindful effort placed on whatever is happening. 
it really became much more apparent to me when I did the more practice of, more practice of mindfulness of mind and brought the attention to what was going on in the mind and noticing that mindfulness of even the defilements brought delight to the mind or kind of, I wouldn't say delight, but more joyful interest in what was going on. And it brought a lightness to the mind and that brought a lot of confidence to that, the ability to continue to do practice. So this is joyful interest. It's sometimes also characterized as agility. Some of the ways that we feel it happen is when it gets really, really pervasive, there's a kind of floating feeling in the body. It feels like when you're walking, it feels like you're walking kind of on water. It's moving. Or when you're sitting, it, feel, it can feel like you're sitting on a boat and it's rocking like that. Um, so there, there are other characteristics of that. Uh, let's see. So those are the energizing. Investigation, energy, and joyful interest. It's said of all of these qualities of mind that mindfulness, investigation, and energy are the ones that we practice here the most. They're the ones that we're given the instruction around and that the remaining qualities naturally arise from these qualities, mindfulness, investigation, and energy. So it's important to keep the energy balanced. It's important to know what investigation really means of this present moment and to bring mindfulness to the present moment's experience. So the three stabilizing factors now, they're calm or tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. So calm and tranquility, remembering um, joyful interest is like this. I'm going back to that for a moment. This is what joyful interest feels like. It feels like you're walking through a desert parched with thirst in your mouth and your throat and you see water from a distance. It's like you see an oasis and you know that, ah, you know, that it's, if you keep on going, you see the light at the end of the tunnel, so to say. But this calm and tranquility is like you're walking through that desert and you finally arrive at that water and you actually drink it. And you're sitting there or you're walking or you're being in any one of the four um, postures of the body and you really feel that sense of calm and tranquility overcome your mind and your heart. And so this is like the sense that of drinking that calm, cool, the, the mind and body are cooled out. This kind of serenity, um, sometimes people think that, oh, this, this calm, this, constant, this kind of tranquility is it. And it's around this area that sometimes people think, oh, I'm enlightened already. I know more than the teacher knows. And uh, these things really come, you know, and they want to um, go out and tell everybody how to do the practice. So 
this calm and tranquility develops as the rapture or the joyful interest smooths out. We feel a sense of the absence of restlessness. No matter what happens, the, the mind isn't disturbed. Sometimes we feel the thoughts are very far away. You know, the thoughts come, but they're, they're not, they don't disturb the, the mind so much. It feels like the, just the sound of the waves in the background. There's a very settled contentedness in the mind. Um, some of these words are words that yogis use to describe their, the calmness, the tranquility. Even when moving, there's a sense of tranquility. But it's very, it can be very delicate also, so we have to be uh, careful. So this is about calm, the first of the stabilizing factors. The second one is concentration. Concentration is really undistracted attention. This afternoon, we did a metta practice. We did kind of a body scan with metta practice. And in this body scan with metta practice, we applied metta to wherever we put the attention. I asked you to concentrate on various parts of the body. And so when you did that, you brought this kind of uh, unification of the energy to a particular part of the body. And you might have noticed for moments there that the attention didn't stray. It didn't go to something else. Maybe it did once in a while, but it could stay on something and apply the concentration there. We used metta. We used uh, light. We used color to represent metta. And we brought it to that particular area. So this is the collectedness of the mind, the energy of the mind brought to a certain place, a certain experience. This is concentration. It develops out of tranquility, out of calm. What concentration does is merely to take the energy that's available and gathers it and it points it in one direction and everything else is at bay. Sure, once in a while it goes there, but it can come back. There's a steadiness of mind when this happens. All the strength is in one stream. It's not dissipated or fractured. The function of concentration is merely to collect the mind. Concentration is really needed to um, support mindfulness. If concentration weren't supporting mindfulness, then again, there would be this distraction. So mindfulness and concentration come together. It supports mindfulness in a very powerful way. There's a beautiful story I heard in the Tibetan tradition where um, the king sent one of his um, uh, high... Uh, people out in the, in the field to, to check on something out there in one of his king, one of the parts of his kingdom. And this, this, um, this chancellor was mindfulness. It went out to um, see what was going on in part of his kingdom. And when he went out there, the, 
the, um, that mindfulness, that chancellor called mindfulness, was killed. And so he, then he sent out this uh, other chancellor to help mindfulness so that mindfulness would be stronger. And so he sent out the chancellor of uh, concentration. And so with these two together, then both concentration and mindfulness were much stronger. So these two need to, they really support one another. But mindfulness is not concentration, and concentration is not mindfulness. They're different things. So you'll understand more about that through practice. When there's too much concentration, we come into a trance. We get absorbed in the object. And it's a very wonderful feeling, but it's not mindfulness. It's not knowing moment by moment what's happening. It just gets absorbed in that. And oftentimes, we think that this kind of experience is it, this absorption. And we've come to the pinnacle of our understanding of our spiritual experience. But it is not. It's just kind of a parking lot along the way. And people get stuck, or they like to park here for a long, long time because it's so pleasant. And it's very difficult then to move into un the understanding of what mindfulness opens to because mindfulness opens to pain. It opens to dukkha. It opens to suffering, which concentration alone cannot do. <clears throat> so when there's too much concentration, we can get absorbed. And it's not really seeing things clearly. So the last, that's concentration. And the last of the stabilizing factors is equanimity. Just a few. Um, moments more. This is a long talk. It covers a lot. So equanimity is one of the stabilizing, tranquilizing factors. It's called the doorway to peace. It's a very balanced, spacious stillness. That's the experiential uh, understanding of it. One of the ways that equanimity is described is it stills the mind before it falls into extremes, before it falls into the extreme of uh, reactivity, reacting towards the pleasant with clinging or attachment, reacting towards the unpleasant with aversion or resistance. This mainly is what reactivity is all about in terms of this area of equanimity. When equanimity is um, present, there's a lot of confidence in the mind, a lot of faith uh, in the mind, and that faith is balanced by understanding, by wisdom. Energy is balanced with concentration, so there's a very deep balance going on in the mind. It's described as a metaphor. It's described like this. It's like raindrops. It feels if we were like a lotus leaf that's slightly tilted, it feels like raindrops could fall on this lotus leaf and roll off. And just whatever comes does not remain there. It just slips away very, very easily. 
when any of the eight vicissitudes of life arise within or around us, praise and blame, gain or loss, joy, sorrow, fame or disrepute, it's just seen as uh, it's one of the vicissitudes of life. It's just like this. It's just one of the things I say to myself about living in this world of praise and blame, gain and loss, joy and sorrow, fame and disrepute, is I say to myself, this is samsara. This is the, this is the level of life that we live in. This is how it is. If it weren't like this, yeah, we'd be in the heaven realm. But here we are. This is samsara. About equanimity, it is said, when there is nothing in the world that can trigger agitation, then one is free from the pain of longing, of wanting something else. So there's this total connection with life, this clarity, this caring, this non-reactivity. When this is there, it's not that you become a blah, you know, or a doormat to life. There's this very clear seeing so that one can know what action to take, if any. So from equanimity, a lot can arise, a lot of wisdom in terms of our vipassana practice. And in terms of um, our practice in the world, it's said that the strongest compassion arises from equanimity, that equanimity in the world um, is, at, is a doorway to very strong compassion because we're letting go of attachment to result. We, we do things out of wanting to help, wanting to benefit. If it doesn't benefit, it's okay. We still help. We still do what we can. So these are the seven. Mindfulness is the linking factor. Investigation, energy, and joyful interest are the energizing factors. Calm, concentration, and equanimity are the calming factors. And when these come in balance with one another, the uh, energizing factors are balanced by the tranquilizing factors, then we feel a great deal of nutriment in our inner life. We feel a, a lot of spiritual energy to keep going on our path. They arise naturally from awareness, from mindfulness. So as Manindra says, we're just asking you to be mindful, but it's amazing that we have to figure out countless ways to talk about mindfulness in order to drive the point in. I mean, that's our job as a, our role as a um, Dhamma friend is to find all the different ways to say, can you just be mindful? You know, when you're practicing with the, with the Burmese Seydaos, they'll mostly just say, just be mindful. We, we try to make it more interesting. <laughs> or they'll say, just say, please continue. <laughs> or they might throw out a goodie that says, you're on the right path. Oh, that's really good when they say that, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, so I'd like to end where I began from the words of the Buddha. You are the light. You are the refuge. 
there is no place to take refuge but yourself. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.